to BIV Today. I'm Tyler Orton, and we officially have a snap election on our hands. Now, British Columbians, we got a taste of that last fall, and now Canadians all across the country will be heading to the ballot box in September to pick a federal government. With us today to offer some insights on the top issues and where federal politicians stand here with folks on the West Coast. It is pollster Mario Canseco. He is the president of Research Co. He's also a columnist here at BIV. Mario, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Tyler. Great to be here. Okay, so you just released a new survey last week, and it really spells out where things stand among British Columbians. So I'll just ask you maybe kind of the top question first, but uh, among all the leaders, uh, who's the most popular? Well, we have Jagmeet Singh of the NDP slightly ahead of Justin Trudeau uh, when it comes to the actual popularity of the leaders. The number significantly lower for Erin O'Toole of the Conservative Party and also very low uh, for the remaining party leaders. I think one of the surprises is uh, the relative lack of knowledge that we see from British Columbians when it comes to Green Party leader Annamy Paul. Certainly not the numbers that we're used to uh, seeing here, especially when Elizabeth May was the one who was running as the leader of the Green Party. So definitely at the start of the campaign, larger challenges for the Conservatives when it comes to voting, for the Greens when it comes to presence, and essentially a situation where the Liberals are trying to hold on to the seats that they have and maybe expand their domain uh, into the, the, the uh, Fraser Valley. So many parallels to what we saw with the BC election. You know, you have a minority government. Uh, you also have a lot of other opposition parties that don't really seem interested in going into a, an election. But the other thing that crosses my mind, though, is that we know that uh, Andrew Weaver, he or Andrew Wilkinson, I, I'm probably not the first person to confuse the two, but uh, Andrew Wilkinson, <laughs> he, he had like more than a year to kind of uh, get his name out there to British Columbians. But I bet you, you know, uh, if you showed a picture of him to the average person on the street, uh, you know, just uh, weeks before we had that fall election, they probably could not have named who that person was. And look, uh, Aaron O'Toole has had even less time. I think he's only been leader for about 11 and a half months now. Do you see him having a lot of ground to make up, especially considering where his polling numbers are at this point? Well, it's certainly something that can be done at the local level. Uh, you know, I go back to the most successful election uh, that the center-right parties had in this century here in British Columbia, and it's 2000 under Stockwell Day. They get 49% of the vote for the Canadian Alliance. Uh, nobody has come remotely close to that level of support, even though he was somebody who was in the job for just a few months. So if you manage to establish that emotional connection with voters they will definitely support you. And the situation was similar back in 2000. There was no need for Jan Chrétien to have another election so close to the last one, but they thought this is a good chance to um, do well and essentially get a lot of votes in Ontario and in Quebec because people don't know who Stockwell Day is, even if people in Alberta and in BC are going to continue to vote for the Canadian Alliance. Um, this time around, I think it's a little bit different um, because of the situation with the Unified Conservative Party uh, but also because it's been very difficult for the conservatives to really coalesce around the figure of Erin O'Toole. Um, we didn't have that situation when Stockwell Day became the leader of the Canadian Alliance. You know, there was essentially a situation where you were following in in the footsteps of whoever was there before you, in this case, Preston Manning. And this time around, um, the more we ask Canadians about Erin O'Toole, we continue to see people moving from the undecided column to the disapproval column. And this could be problematic 
uh, within the context of the election, if we continue to see numbers that are low for the conservatives, and then the Tory voter says there's something good on television tonight, I'm not going to bother showing up to vote. It's just weird in that, like, who knows how his performance will shape kind of the future of his leadership. You know, maybe he makes some big gains, but it's not enough to, you know, form government. Would he perhaps be under pressure to resign, even though he just had, you know, Andrew Scheer just resigned uh, a short time ago? Well, usually what you see there, and and I guess we can go back to other elections in the past, is... Uh, you have the ability to win a little bit more than the previous time. Uh, Somebody who benefited from that type of thinking was Jack Layton. He always won more seats in every election. And because we had minority governments, the NDP decided not to have any leadership reviews that were serious because the election could be triggered at any time. Uh, But we go back maybe to Robert Stanfield, who had a couple of kicks at the can against uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And there was always a little bit of an improvement in the elections and the opportunity to say, let's just coalesce around this leader. Uh, It's just not the same type of situation anymore. And if we start to see a lower number of seats for the conservatives and a lower number of of votes, uh, then it's going to be very difficult for somebody um, like O'Toole to hold on to the job. I thought at the time... You know, Sheer had everything to basically uh, stay for another term or for another election. Uh, he had more votes. He had more seats. Uh, there was an improvement in the way the Conservative Party did in the last Harper election compared to the only Sheer election. But it wasn't enough to save him because there was an expectation that Trudeau was untested and they needed somebody who essentially win immediately. And it certainly doesn't look uh, like that is going to happen for the Conservatives at the early stage of the campaign. The other thing that I'm thinking about, I I keep going back to kind of the parallels between the BC election and what we have right now on the federal level. And, you know, one of the things is we ended up with, you know, low, low voter turnout. I think it's like lowest on record here in British Columbia. And a lot of it is like an election going on during the pandemic. And, you know, the opposition parties didn't get much traction by trying to criticize the Horgan government by saying it was kind of a selfish move. I see uh, both of the main party leaders, Jagmeet Singh, as well as Aaron O'Toole, trying that same tactic uh, with Trudeau. I, I don't know how that's going to work because I, I just wonder if the people that are already engaged, they'll just kind of shrug it off. Um, you're not going to win over new voters with that. And speaking of engagement, you know, where do you anticipate, you know, some of the engagement? Do you think we could have low, you know, turnouts or do you think it'd be kind of comparable to the previous federal election? Well, I think there's a couple of factors uh, that are going to make this a little bit different. I, I, I do share the the idea that this is very, very similar to what we saw in the last election, partially because of the way in which it is happening. It's a government where a lot of people are happy with your handling of the pandemic where you have delivered on the promise of the vaccination uh, a month before you were supposed to. And, you know, that emotional connection with the voters is definitely going to be there for the liberals, regardless of what the policy platforms say. So I think that is one of the reasons why they're doing it. Uh, but it's not going to be as difficult as it was for the BC liberals. I think the the moment of the pandemic that we were living back then, um, took away their ability to do two things that they do very well. One is knocking on doors, which they couldn't do. And the other one is to fill a gym or a town hall with people who wanted to talk to the leader. Uh, You couldn't do either of those things uh, back in October of 2020, but you will be able to do them uh, in August or September of 2021. So there's definitely more opportunities for the conservatives to get to know uh, the residents of specific areas, to get to know the candidates in the ridings, um, certainly better than, than than what we saw for the BC Liberals under Andrew Wilkinson, because 
the fact that the campaign happened at that particular moment of the pandemic um, made it almost impossible for them to connect on something other than why are you calling this election? And, and I thought that was a, a, a very... Um, not not really a smart move on the part of the BC Liberals uh, to to continue to hammer the idea that the election was not supposed to happen. Uh, you're spending four, five, maybe seven days hammering the same message when you could spend that time talking about policy. And I I don't expect the Conservatives, the NDP, or the Green. Uh, to spend more than two days talking about this. You need to move on into the policy side of things and not question whether the election is happening or not because it's not your jurisdiction. It is the prime minister's jurisdiction. So one of the things that you just outlined uh, a moment ago was you know, the popularity of leaders. Um, how does that reflect, though, with regards to the parties and who British Columbians would actually vote for within their own constituency? Well, at this moment, this is looking more like 2015. Uh, the Liberals in first place... Uh, the difference is that now we have the NDP in second place and the Conservatives in third. Uh, this is completely normal at the early stage of the campaign uh, because, you know, we're still trying to get to know the candidates. There are still people who don't know who's running in the riding. So there could be a little bit of a shift for the Conservatives or the NDP. Um, but it's certainly different than the last election. 2019 was a return to the median that we saw in most of the elections in this century with the Conservatives or the Canadian Alliance getting more votes uh, than all of the other parties. Um, it's different this time around because of the emotional connection. And to me, one of the areas that is going to be crucial to watch is the Fraser Valley. You know, this is a part of the province that used to vote for the BC Liberals consistently. And we had some very high-profile liberal incumbents losing in the last provincial election because people in the Fraser Valley were very, very satisfied with how the pandemic was managed. So we could see a similar situation here where conservative incumbents are in danger at the federal level in the Fraser Valley because people are happy with the way this pandemic has been handled and they start to vote more for the liberals. So the growth for the liberals, if they want to get to that majority government, is definitely important in Quebec, where we see the level of support for separatism and the block dropping, but also getting more seats in the urban areas, especially Metro Vancouver, and maybe expanding some of that into the Fraser Valley to get those uh, coveted 15 seats that gives them a majority. Well, you brought up the year 2015, and that kind of reminds me of another question you're asking in this, you know, kind of uh, juxtaposing the Harper years for British Columbians versus, you know, the Trudeau years uh, for British Columbians. How do British Columbians kind of feel about uh, how they were treated by the, the government or the prime minister during those different eras? Well, right now we have more residents of British Columbia who say that they've been treated well by the Trudeau government than those who say that they were treated well by the Harper government. Uh, frankly, that was a little bit of a surprising number. I mean, we usually have this dichotomy where you have people who vote liberal and despise everything that is conservative and people who vote conservative who despise everything that smells liberal. Uh, but we see even conservative voters saying, well, Trudeau hasn't really been that bad. Uh, to this province. You have a lot of people who maybe voted for the NDP or the Greens who say, okay, you know, maybe he's not doing everything that he was supposed to do. And there are certain aspects of the platform in 2015 that were never implemented, such as electoral reform. Um, but I still think it hasn't been as bad as it was under Stephen Harper. And to me, that really speaks about the difficulty of the conservatives trying to connect after Stephen Harper left. You know, it's quite striking to have somebody who led elections in the past where he got 40% of the vote or more than 40% of the vote in BC and now have only 38% of people saying, well, yeah, he was a good prime minister, 
uh, to us. Um, it's definitely not the type of situation that you want to have. And it speaks about the difficulty of really renewing the party uh, after Stephen Harper was gone. You know, we might be headed into having maybe three different leaders if Erin O'Toole effectively loses this election and is um, basically pushed out, uh, having three different leaders within a very small time frame um, trying to supplant Stephen Harper. Yeah, I, I do wonder how things are going to shake out uh, for uh, Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives in this coming election. Uh, do you just think that, you know, just kind of there might be uncertainty about how things might shake out overall just because we're in kind of this weird kind of pandemic era? Who knows who's actually going to show up or who knows who's going to mail in their ballots? Is it just kind of particularly tough at this moment to make a guess about how this election might turn out? Well, I think one of the issues that is going to be very complicated is how something like this plays out in the two largest provinces. You know, we keep looking into British Columbia. Uh, We've already had our own pandemic election. People voted by mail. Uh, We had many opportunities to do this in a different moment. Um, How are people in Quebec and in Ontario who've never done this during a pandemic how are they going to react to, to, to react to something like this? Are they going to change the way they vote? Are they going to decide to vote earlier or maybe vote by mail? Um, it's going to be more complicated because that is where the majority of the seats are. And that is definitely the area that the liberals are targeting in order to get that majority government. Um, the way people might react to the campaign during the pandemic is, is definitely going to be important, especially in the areas that haven't experienced it. But that being said, we've had elections in BC. We have an election in Nova Scotia. We had elections in Saskatchewan and Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, There is an opportunity to know how the process operates and maybe just say, okay, we've done this before and we just have to get our ballot and just get it over with. Um, But establishing that level of emotional connection as the opposition is going to be very complicated. You know, I, I... we don't see COVID-19 as the you know, all-encompassing issue that it was a year and a half ago, understandably so, um, but it's still going to be the one thing that the liberals are going to discuss very prominently, regardless of what the topic is. You know, We could be heading into a debate where the question is about housing, and the candidate says, how about those two shots of the vaccine that we got into everybody? You know, They're going to talk about this as long as they can, because it's a record that they can run on. Well, you actually reminded me of something I I wanted to ask you about, but uh, what are the top issues for British Columbians going into this election? Well, housing, homelessness, and poverty continues to be the number one issue. 26% of residents believe that that is the one thing that is going to be defining their vote in the election. Um, We see a little bit of a drop for the economy and jobs and healthcare, but the biggest surprise for me is to see the environment in fourth place at only 13%. This is an issue... Uh, that you know has been closer or even higher than 20% in past elections. And there's been moments when it has been number one or number two. Um, there's definitely not been the same type of connection with this issue that we've seen in the past. And if anything, we see a higher level of, um, of support for things that are related to the environment in Quebec, um, which is important. You know, this is going to make things very difficult for the Green Party. You know, you don't have the environment as an issue as high as it used to be, and you no longer have a leader of the Green Party who is running in a constituency here in British Columbia. So how are you going to connect uh, when you have those difficulties in front of you? Um, it certainly doesn't bode well for the future of the party because you don't no longer have the same level of familiarity with the issue that you had in years past, 
but also you don't have the same level of familiarity with the person who is running as leader. So it's definitely a catch-22. I, I hope it's not going to take more smoke billowing up into the sky to uh, get uh, more British Columbians on board with uh, the environment. But um, one of the other things that you looked into was what were the leader's perceived strengths? And, you know, Aaron O'Toole, like he comes down well with, say, energy, pipelines, um, Trudeau, uh, he got good marks for, for British Columbia, from British Columbians when it comes to foreign policy. I, if I was a cynical person, I don't know. What I guess, like, Canadians are always kind of fond of giving him more of a popularity boost whenever he gets some good uh, foreign coverage? Or what's your takeaway on uh, his uh, foreign policy credentials and why he rates so high? Well, I think foreign policy, immigration, uh, those are issues where the incumbent has to do well. Uh, you know, you're the one who has handled the file. You're the one who has traveled the world. You're the one who's shaking hands with Angela Merkel. Uh, you know, of course, you're going to do a little bit better than the rest because of the lack of foreign policy experience. Um, one of the big surprises uh, from the findings was uh, we usually saw Elizabeth May as number one or number two on the environment. And we see Anna Paul. Uh, dropping into third or fourth place. So that is definitely not a situation that you want to see. And conservatives used to connect very well, even when they were informing the government on matters such as crime and public safety and also the economy and jobs. There was always this idea from the electorate in British Columbia that even if the conservatives were not in power, they knew how to handle finances. And we no longer see that huge advantage for Erin O'Toole on this. Part of this is that many residents may not know who he is or know enough about the platform that he wants to implement. But it also means a very different state of mind when it comes to finances. You know, we had uh, many provincial campaigns where the busy liberals were running on the idea of not having a deficit, spending money wisely, never going into the red. It's impossible to do something like this within the context of the pandemic. So this is a province that used to be very careful when it came to managing money. And now we are no longer as interested in ensuring that the government isn't spending more than it has. So running a campaign based on not having a deficit is probably not going to get you a lot of votes when people are still desperate about what, the, what kind of economic recovery can we expect after COVID-19 is gone. I want to plug your latest column at BIV.com. You examine how cabinet ministers that are based here in British Columbians are faring amongst uh, BC residents. Um, how's it going so far? Are, are they proving to be popular amongst the, uh, the West Coast electorate? Well, this is something I was deeply curious about uh, because, you know, if we go back to the Cretian years, we had a minister of Western diversification, but we never had anybody who was really high profile, certainly not in the way that we did with Jody Wilson-Raybould in justice and with Harjit Sajan in defense. And the numbers are really lukewarm. You know, I was expecting maybe one or two of the ministers to be closer to the 45 or 50 percent range. And, you know, Harjit Sajan is at 37 percent, even though he's had a lot of difficulties and probably more now that the Afghanistan situation is sort of falling out of hand. Um, but the numbers aren't there. And, you know, I thought I, I would see some sort of connection from the liberal voter um, towards the four people who are serving in those ministries. And the numbers are just not there. Uh, they're not there for Joyce Murray in digital government. They're not there for Carla Qualtro in economic development. And they're certainly not there for Jonathan Wilkinson in environment. So I don't think we see the same type of emotional connection that they expressed towards Trudeau, 51% of them saying he's done a good job as prime minister, 
but all of the ministers are in the 30s or 20s. So it really hasn't been Trudeau's team of British Columbians. And, and, you know, it's essentially, you know, Trudeau and whoever puts his name next to him. Well, I could probably pick your brain for another uh, 20, 25 minutes, Mario. I, I will let you go, but I just want to thank you once more for joining us on the show today. My pleasure, Tyler. Anytime. That is Mario Canseco, president of Research Co. and a columnist at Business in Vancouver. And you can go to BIV.com, find his column there, as as well as some other stories, more interviews. And I just want to thank everyone for listening. And for now, I'm Tyler Orton.